morning, everybody. It's good to uh, be able to teach again. Um, second time, taught a couple weeks ago. We looked at Genesis 3.15, and today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24 together. So I just want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to be looking at verses 44 to 49 together. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. About 75% of the contents in this book that I'm holding in my hand is contained in the Old Testament, which means that only around 25% or about one-fourth of Scripture is contained in the New Testament. So approximately three-fourths of the material in our Bibles was recorded before Christ came into the world, before the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In light of this, some of us may feel like only 25% of the Bible or only a quarter of the Bible, is really for us. And that the other 75%, the remaining 75, is at least on some level not very accessible to us. Maybe you have, at times, felt a lack of interest in reading the Old Testament, or maybe you found it to be dry, boring, or even irrelevant. And maybe this has caused you to stick to the New Testament, stick to that 25% on the far right side. So when you sit down to spend time reading God's Word in the morning or whenever you spend time doing that, the Old Testament, more often than not, stays over there on that side of the Bible untouched. Whatever the case may be, my hope is today that God would open the eyes of our hearts to understand a little bit more of how the Old Testament scriptures bear witness to Christ or point us to Christ. That's one of my uh, big goals today that we would see how the Old Testament scriptures point us to Christ. Coming to understand the Bible in this way will help us to appreciate Christ and his gospel more, when we can see the Christ-saturated Old Testament for what it really is. And the hope is that the more that we see and appreciate of Christ and his glory in the scriptures, and the Old Testament in particular, the more our lives will be driven by a love for Christ. We want to be whole Bible Christians, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And so if you're someone who has often skipped over reading the Old Testament, I hope that today, as we spend time together in the scriptures, you will come to see the Old Testament as the gospel treasure, treasure chest that it really is. And if you're someone who already has an understanding of the Old Testament and how it points us to Christ, I hope that you too will be freshly encouraged as you smell the aroma of Christ in the Old Testament once again. And lastly, if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, I hope that as we dig into the Old Testament and see how it points to Jesus, you too would be led to trust in Christ and surrender to him in faith today. So in our, in our passage uh, today, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has now risen from the dead, and he was crucified, dead, buried, and now he's alive again. Jesus is back, and he begins to appear to his disciples. Earlier on in chapter 24, Jesus had appeared to do two disciples on the road to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. These two disciples, after meeting with Christ, the risen Christ, head back to Jerusalem, find the 11 core disciples, and tell them what happened. And then as they're doing that, Jesus appears to all of them at the same time. And so that's what we're going to be uh, picking up on. We're going to listen in on Jesus' conversation with the disciples, starting uh, in verse 44 on through 49. Scripture says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are, my witness, excuse me, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay, first of all, in verse 44, I want you to notice Jesus, now risen from the dead, is reminding his disciples of things that he had previously told them before his death on the cross. Notice Jesus' words. These are my words that I spoke, uh, spoke to you while I was still with you. So these events that happened did not catch Jesus by surprise. They were planned predicted, predestined beforehand, and Jesus was telling them about it before it happened. So what are the things that Jesus had previously told them? Well, he continues on in verse 44 saying that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Other people have pointed out that the phrase the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms uh, is a reference to the Hebrew Old Testament. So this three-part Old Testament, Jesus is saying that the Old Testament speaks of him, and it had to be fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures that bore witness to him had to be fulfilled. I want you to imagine a play or a musical or a movie, if any, there's any actors in here, anyone in, in uh, plays in school, in high school. Of course, actors and actresses need scripts that they're given, and they do according to the script. For Jesus, it's like the Old Testament is his play script. And in the New Testament, we see his real historical performance on the stage of life. Jesus went by the script, and his script was the Old Testament. We see a picture of this in Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus has to correct Peter for trying to prevent his arrest. As you remember, I'm sure Peter attacks the servant of the high priest, cuts off his right ear with a sword, and Jesus says to him, do you, think that I, uh, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But notice what Christ says. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? It's like Jesus is saying if he wanted to, he could shut this whole thing down right now. He could shut the whole thing down. It'd be easy for the father to send him thousands of angels and rescue him immediately. But Jesus says, but then how are the scriptures going to be fulfilled? They say, this has to happen to me this way. Jesus, in other words, Jesus has to stick to the script. It has to happen according to the book. The Son of Man must go as it is written of him. Otherwise, the scriptures would be left unfulfilled. So here in Luke 24, Jesus is telling his disciples once again things he had told them before his death and resurrection but they didn't get it. And I hope we can sympathize with them uh, a little bit. They did not understand. Jesus had told them before. He's telling them after. They failed to understand that the Old Testament bore witness to Jesus Christ. They didn't get it. But notice in verse 45, and this is, this is huge, they needed to have this reality divinely revealed to them by Christ in order to understand the Bible. Luke writes, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus opened the disciples' minds so that they could understand how the Old Testament bore witness about him. It's not that the disciples were clueless as to what the Old Testament said, but they didn't comprehend how Christ was written of there. They didn't understand the Old Testament as God understood it 
uh, excuse me, as God intended it to be understood. Which means if we cut Jesus Christ out of our interpretation and understanding of the Old Testament, we don't understand it rightly. A proper grasp of the Old Testament is connected to understanding how it testifies of Christ. And then back, if we get back to Luke 24 and verses 46 and 47, Jesus then gets more specific concerning the content of what the Old Testament revealed about him. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Then Jesus briefly finishes in 48, 49, saying, You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That 48:49 there is going to happen, take place in the book of Acts. So if you keep reading uh, in the New Testament in the book of Acts, that's what happens. The disciples are witnesses to these things, of these things. Clothed with the Holy Spirit, they go out and preach the gospel in power. But just to summarize briefly what Jesus says the Old Testament testimony is of him, he speaks of suffering, which ultimately culminates in his death, his resurrection, and global gospel proclamation starting in Jerusalem, which results in the forgiveness of sins for those who repent, those who turn from sin to God in faith. So death, resurrection, global evangelism, and forgiveness of sins for those who turn to Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. These things, Jesus says, are contained in the Old Testament scriptures. In the book of Acts, Peter mimics Jesus' words about this predicted suffering when he says similarly that what God foretold by the mouth, excuse me, God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Peter says here, all the prophets predicted that Jesus would suffer. Not one or two or just a verse here or verse there. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter says, all the prophets predicted the suffering of Christ. The natural force of Jesus and Peter's words lead us, to lead us to conclude that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all over the Old Testament. It's what everybody in the Old Testament is talking about. And I don't know if you're like me, maybe you have similar thoughts. When we hear these words of Jesus, of Peter, the question naturally arises, where, where, in the Old Testament is the death and resurrection of Christ spoken of? This is an important question for us to answer as Christians. And as we saw just a moment ago, understanding the Old Testament rightly hinges on understanding how it testifies of Christ. Author Graham Goldsworthy writes, the meaning of all the scriptures is unlocked by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the Old Testament, though containing 39 different books in our Bibles, tells one unified story that slowly but surely leads up to Christ who comes into the world to save sinners in Matthew chapter 1. But not only is this, the Bible, this book, a unified story that is flowing towards Christ and finds its fulfillment in him, but as we travel throughout this story, God, the divine director, gives us pictures, hints, shadows of Christ and his work along the way. Another way that I think we can think of the Old Testament and its relationship to Christ that I have found helpful is a mosaic. A mosaic is a picture made up of different colored pieces of stone, glass, ceramic. Maybe some of you in here have made uh, a mosaic before. All these smaller pieces come together and contribute to forming the larger, greater picture. 
collectively, they can make a really beautiful mosaic. In the Old Testament, it functions like a mosaic of Jesus Christ. It's a mosaic of the Messiah. There are a multitude of prophecies and types, shadows, patterns, experiences in the Old Testament that when we bring them all together, create this beautiful mosaic of Jesus Christ and his gospel work. And so for the remainder of our time together, I thought uh, I would like us to look at a few pieces of this mosaic in the Old Testament. Can't talk about it without uh, going back and looking at it. So um, we're going to look at a few examples, probably five or six, depending on how much time we have. And I do want to say before that this will not be the full picture. I apologize in advance. This is, this is just getting our feet wet. But I do hope that as we study and as you're stirred, I, I do hope you're stirred to see Christ in the Old Testament and then it would cause you to want to dig deeper into the Old Testament uh, after today. And there's so much more that could be said, but just consider this as an introduction to this fascinating topic. So for our time today, I just want us to dig into what Jesus meant when he said in Luke 24, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So that'll be our focus, Christ suffering and rising from the dead. So two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 3.15, and so we won't be covering that again today, but I do want to say this is an important piece in the puzzle. This is a very important piece in the mosaic, Genesis 3.15. And so again, we won't look at that, but keep that in mind. Keep Genesis 3.15 in mind as we look at all these different puzzle pieces, all these different mosaic pieces together. So the first example I want us to, uh, that I'm going to share on is the Passover lamb. This is one that's probably quite familiar to many of you. It's an important piece of this puzzle, of this gospel mosaic. Um, When God was going to bring the Israelites out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, he brought plagues on the nation of Egypt because the king stubbornly refused to let God's people go free. And before that final plague that God brought upon the Egyptians, which was the death of every firstborn, he told the Israelites to take a lamb without defect, kill it, and put some of the blood on the sides and tops of the door frames of their houses. And they were also to eat the meat and not to break any of the Passover lamb's bones. And so when the Lord saw the blood as he came through Egypt that night for judgment, the firstborn of every Israelite family would be safe, would be rescued from that judgment. God would pass over, would skip over that house because of the blood on that house. So the lamb would serve as a substitute for the firstborn of these Israelite families. And after that last plague took place, the Israelites would go free out of their slavery in Egypt. The king would send them away. So what does this story have us to have to tell us about Christ and his suffering? What does it have to tell us about the death of Christ? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul gives us a statement loaded with meaning, overflowing with significance when he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ is the true Passover lamb who died in our place to protect us from God's righteous judgment. When we trust in Christ's death for us, in that blood that was shed for us, God sees that blood and he passes over us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the connection that Paul makes, I want you to notice the connection that Paul makes between the Passover lamb in Exodus and Jesus Christ is not random. He didn't just think of that up on the spot and make it up and feel like that would sound good. God intentionally instituted the Passover and the sacrifice of this lamb to point forward to the death of Christ. 
The scriptures tell us that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The gospel was the plan from the beginning. And so it makes sense that God is intentionally having events and circumstances and all these things happen as a way to point forward to Jesus Christ. This is intentional on God's part. So as we study the Passover lamb in Exodus, we can learn more about Christ because the Passover finds ultimate fulfillment in him. We don't have to feel bad or apologize for that or think we're, we're doing something wrong when we see the connections between the Passover and Christ. That was God's intention. And just one quick example that helps us see this connection between the Passover lamb and Jesus is in the book of John. When the soldiers were going to come and break the legs of Christ in order to speed along his death, as he was hanging on the cross, they found out that he was already dead, and so they didn't break his legs. And John says, these things took place that the scripture might be, notice this word, fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We see that both in Exodus, uh, we, I believe we see that in the book of Numbers, and then it's later repeated about the righteous man in uh, the book of Psalms, that none of his bones will be broken. Interestingly, John says the soldiers did not break Jesus' legs to fulfill the scripture, not one of his bones will be broken. So what was spoken of concerning the Passover lamb about not breaking their legs was not only about those lambs. It was ultimately about the lamb of God who spilled his blood for us and received no broken bones. The Exodus lambs pointed forward prophetically to the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. The second example I'd like to share on is the bronze serpent in the wilderness. This uh, story may be a little bit less familiar than the Passover lamb. This comes from the book of Numbers. And the Israelites had come out of Egypt. So at this point, they're out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, living in the wilderness before they went in to inhabit the land of Canaan. And they often grumbled and complained about difficulty of life in the wilderness. Anybody here relate to that? On one particular occasion in Numbers 21, the Lord sent serpents among the people to bite them as judgment for their sin, for their grumbling, complaining. And many of the Israelites died. The Israelites then come to Moses and ask him to pray for them that God would take away the snakes. Moses does pray for them and God tells Moses to do something that we probably find quite strange. God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And anyone who looked at this bronze serpent up on a pole would be healed. They would live. They wouldn't die. So God mercifully provided a way of rescue from his judgment on their sin. The snake bites would be counteracted by looking at the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up on a pole. Now, again, we hear that and probably think, that's really weird. Like that, why? That doesn't make, seem to make sense. A snake on a pole for the healing of people? What? is God wanting to communicate through this story? Well, among other things, I think ultimately God is guiding the real-life experiences of the Israelites in such a way as to point to a greater reality found in Christ. God did this with the Passover lamb before they came out of Egypt, and now he's doing it with a snake on a pole after they have come out of Egypt. Through this story, God is teaching us about the good news of Christ's death for us. John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In John chapter 3, Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament for us. The bronze snake being lifted up on a pole pointed forward to Christ being lifted up on a cross. 
This is a prophecy contained in a picture. It had to be this way. Jesus had to go up on the cross. He had to go up on the tree. I mean, notice the the language. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man. It had to be that way. In fulfillment of Scripture. And as the people of Israel who got bit looked at that bronze serpent and lived, so too sinners who look to Christ in faith will have eternal life. We will never perish. By Jesus' wounds, we are healed. Whoever believes in him will live forever. Are you looking to Christ in faith today? Look to him. Trust in him. Christ alone is the way of rescue from the eternal separation from God that we all deserve. There is one way of rescue. Just like God provided the snake in the wilderness, they had to look in the same way. We have to look to Christ in faith to be saved. Example number three is probably my favorite one. They're all good, but this one uh, is particularly awesome. Jonah in the belly of the fish. Jonah was a prophet. I think most of us in here are probably familiar uh, with the story. If we grew up in uh, Sunday school, I'm sure you've heard this story. Jonah was a prophet from Israel called to go and preach in the city of Nineveh, which Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And just to give you a little context, Assyria was the nation that would later decimate Israel, the northern kingdom. They would decimate Israel, exile the people uh, around their kingdom. And so Jonah didn't like the Assyrians and he didn't want God to be merciful towards his enemies. He was told to go to Nineveh, but he, it's like he sensed what God was up to. God's going to show mercy, and he didn't want, to, want that to happen. And so he got on a boat and took off. He tried to run away from the God of heaven and earth. But, of course, as you would expect, God caught up to him. It's hard to run away from a God who's everywhere. But the boat gets, So the boat gets caught in a storm. God sends a storm. Jonah gets caught in a storm, and he ends up telling the sailors, throw me into the sea. Pick me up, hurl me into the sea. He knew that it was his fault. He knew that this storm had come upon them because of what he was doing. He was running from the Lord. And so Jonah's thrown off into the water, and God provides a huge fish to swallow him up, and he was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And after being thrown up, I think ESV says vomited onto dry ground, he then goes and preaches to Nineveh, and the people repented. God spared their lives. So the question is, what does this experience in Jonah's life, particularly in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, what does this have to do with Jesus? Does this contribute to the mosaic of the Messiah in some way? How does this story point to Christ? And the helpful answer that the New Testament gives us is that it it most certainly contributes to that mosaic. It most certainly points us to Christ. Jesus himself in Matthew 12 says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A skeptic might hear that and say, No, Jonah being in a fish for three days, which skeptic wouldn't believe anyway, but for sake of discussion, Jonah being in a fish for three days and coming out is like Jesus' death and resurrection. That sounds crazy. That's bizarre. But friends, we have heard it from the lips of Christ himself. We have to let the hero of the story interpret the story. That was God's intention. Once again, God is governing the experiences of one of his people, in this case Jonah, to serve as preparation for Christ in the New Testament. 
As Jonah went down into the fish and came out alive after three days, so Jesus Christ had to go down into the realm of the dead, into the heart of the earth, and come out alive after three days. Jonah had a death and resurrection-like experience that was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. And as Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, everything written about me in the prophets, like here in Jonah, must be fulfilled. Jesus had to die. Jonah went down. Jesus had to go down. And notice the pattern, too. I think this is really fascinating. Notice the pattern of Jonah's experiences. Suffering, rescue, proclamation, pardon. Suffering of Jonah, down in the, in the sea, in the fish. Rescue, coming out. Proclamation to the Ninevites, and then pardon for the Ninevites. Remember, the, remember what Jesus mentioned in Luke 24 was written of him? Suffering, resurrection, global proclamation, and forgiveness. I think this is the same pattern that we see in Luke 24. This is what we see in Jonah. We see this in Luke 24. It's happening in Jonah in miniature form. And, jo and honestly, Jonah is not the only one. I think one of the more fascinating things that I have come to see in the scriptures in recent years is to see this pattern in the life of people like Joseph. Suffering, redemption, rescue. In the book of Daniel, suffering, rescue, proclamation. Esther, same way. It isn't a coincidence that we see this pattern occurring over and over in the life of God's people. God is telling us about the gospel in many different ways in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Christ died and rose again. It's amazing. The Bible, the Old Testament scriptures are filled with gospel treasure. The fourth example I'd like us to look at is the temple. The temple. In the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was the most important place on planet Earth. The reason being is that God dwelt among human beings through the temple in a special way. God's presence was there in a special way like it wasn't other places. Israel was promised blessings for their obedience once they came out of Egypt, God said he was going to dwell among them. They were promised blessings for obedience, but also curses for disobedience. And the ultimate curse I think we see in the Old Testament context would be exile. So enemies coming in, destroying their city, destroying their temple, and sending them away. That would be the culmination of the curse in the Old Testament context, being cut off from the land, from the temple, from God's presence. And sure enough, it did happen as God had said. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in and destroys the city, destroys the temple, and the people are dispersed. God's house, his temple, lay in ruins in Jerusalem. But after a certain amount of time, the people returned. God brought, brought them back. This was also predicted. God's people would return from exile, and the temple would be rebuilt. King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. King Cyrus decreed to have it rebuilt. So God's dwelling, dwelling place was destroyed and then rebuilt. There was destruction and then restoration. So the question is, is there something in the temple and its destruction and rebuilding that points us to Christ and his gospel work? I believe that there is. During the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, he said something greater than the temple is here. God has now come to dwell with human beings, not in a building this time, but in a body. And Jesus tells the Jews in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The temple that Jesus is talking about here, John says, is his own body. The temple 
of his body. The temple that would be destroyed and rebuilt is Jesus Christ himself. So I think we can conclude that the destruction and rebuilding of the Old Testament temple would find its ultimate fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the temple was destroyed in the Old Testament, that was God's curse coming down on his people. And in the New Testament, Galatians 3 tells us that Christ became a curse for us. The temple was destroyed because of our sin. Your sin, my sin, the temple was decimated. Jesus Christ was crucified. But after three days, on the third day, the temple was rebuilt. Christ was raised to life again and lives forever. So the temple finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. The destruction, the rebuilding finds its culmination in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus here today, by faith, our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. We are living temples because we're connected to Jesus Christ, the true temple. Next example I'd like us to look at is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. In light of Jesus' words in Luke 24, that everything written about him in the Psalms must be fulfilled, we see that David and others did not just write for themselves alone. This is such a fascinating thing in Scripture. David's experiences, Dave, the things that came from David's pen, were not just written for him alone. His experiences also served as prophetic predictions as well. We hear the voices of various authors throughout the Psalms, but ultimately we hear what one person called the deeper voice, and that is the voice of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed as you've read the Psalms that many of them begin with this suffering, a crying out, God, help, please, they're, they're, my enemies are trying to destroy me. And then they end with this rescue and vindication of God's servant and praise to God. Over and over, I'm reading through the Psalms right now, it's like you can't get away from that pattern. It's just over and over and over, the Psalms keep showing us that pattern. And so God designed David and other people's experiences in the Psalms to form a pattern that would ultimately be fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ a thousand years later. Or to borrow a phrase from somebody, this, they say this is what we would call the gospel pattern, that suffering and vindication, that death and resurrection pattern, suffering and rescue. The Psalms have been called the songs of Jesus, and I think we could also appropriately, appropriately call them the journal of Jesus. We get insight into Christ's experiences, his sufferings in the Psalms. And over and over, as I said, David has these death and resurrection-like experiences. And then Jesus Christ, the true David, comes a thousand years later and really dies. He really rises from the dead. G David experienced it metaphorically. G uh, David experienced it um, in part, metaphorically, but Jesus experiences death and resurrection literally, really, truly. Jesus Christ relived and fulfilled David's experiences in a greater way. And I just want to give you a few uh, examples uh, of verses from the Psalms that prophetically point to the sufferings and death of Jesus. Psalm 69.4, it says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. David was hated that way, but ultimately Jesus Christ was hated without cause. And he quotes that in John 15, saying that had to be fulfilled. Psalm 27, 12, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false, witnesses, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Who is that more true of than Jesus Christ? False witnesses rising to accuse him, to condemn him to death. 
They breathe out violence against Christ. Psalm 69, 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. That's the same psalm we hear about them giving Jesus sour wine to drink. Psalm 22, 15 and 16, you lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and feet. Psalm 88, 6 and 7, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Who is that truer of than Jesus Christ, who ultimately took the wrath of God upon himself, who was laid in the dust of death, who had his hands and feet pierced for our salvation? And then just a few passages briefly about Christ's resurrection. Psalm 71:20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Psalm 16:10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter preaches on that in the book of Acts, saying he wasn't abandoned to Sheol. His body did not see corruption. That's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Everything written of Christ in the Psalms had to be fulfilled. His sufferings, his death, his resurrection, they all had to happen as it had been written. And now that Jesus has suffered, risen, and ascended, we who trust in Christ take part and the promises of the Psalms, these promises of the Psalm book, the 150 Psalms, are ours in Christ. They belong to us if we are believers in Jesus Christ. We've had a change of status by nature. We were the wicked that the Psalms talk about. But through God's grace, by God's grace, through faith, we have now come to the side of the righteous because we trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. All the promises are ours in Jesus Christ. And the last example I want to look at comes from Isaiah 53. This is one of the clearest passages of Scripture. This is, a, this is one of the most um, descriptive, if you will, one of, the, one of the most descriptive passages in the Old Testament that speaks of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Remember, this is 700 years before Jesus came into the world. And I just want you to hear some of these words of Isaiah in chapter 53. Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we, like sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice the words Isaiah uses. Pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 24. Everything written about me and the prophets must be fulfilled. He had to be pierced. He had to be crushed. He had to be chastised. He had to receive those wounds. Jesus had to endure what was prophesied in Isaiah 53. The Messiah had to suffer. But then Isaiah continues on in verse 10, and he speaks poetically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. He says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So death is not the end for Yahweh's servant. After death, Jesus will see his offspring. He will live to see the children of God that he is going to purchase with his own blood. His death was not in vain. His days will continue without end. His plans will be established. He will live forever with his people. This is predicted hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. 
And so today, as we have taken a brief glimpse at this mosaic of the Messiah in the Old Testament, I really do hope that what we've studied will encourage you, press you on, press you on to further study. And before we close in prayer, I just want to offer a few uh, takeaways for us today. The first thing is that we want to make sure that as we read our Bibles, we're not stopping at merely knowing the scriptures, but that our aim would be to know and love Christ more through means of the scriptures. This is an important one. Jesus had, had words for Bible readers of his own day who, though they knew the scriptures, they were searching the scriptures, they didn't come to him. They didn't trust in him. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So my question is, for us who are Bible readers, have you come to Christ for life yet? As the scriptures speak to us of Christ and testify of Christ, let's make sure we're being driven to the person of Christ. Don't stop short of the goal which is leading us to Jesus Christ. He's the goal of all of our study. And the second thing I want to encourage you in is to pray again and again that the Lord would give you insight into rightly understanding this book and how it testifies of Christ. The disciples needed that divine illumination, and certainly all of us do. No matter where we're at, we still need the Lord's help more and more to understand the Scriptures. This is God's book, and we need help to grasp how He intends it to be understood. There's a lot of talk out there, a lot of scholarly, ty scholarly types who... Um, just honestly would probably doubt almost everything that I was talking about today. But let our, may, may we let our faith in Christ drive us to the scriptures and listen to what God has to say about his word. Jesus can help us. He will help us. And we can't read the scriptures on our own. The Holy Spirit's illumination is needed. And number three, as you read the Old Testament, I want to encourage you to read the Old Testament with one eye on the new. And as you read the New Testament, that you would keep one eye on the old. I mean, it is a serious privilege that we have as New Covenant Christians to not only have the entirety of Scripture, old and new, but we have it right at our fingertips, in our hands, on our phones. So let's be diligent students of Scripture. Let's dig for gospel gold. There is so much of Christ's beauty to be seen in both Testaments, old and new. I want to encourage you to look for various connections across the scriptures like we did today. When you come across something in the Old Testament, ask, is this spoken of in the New? Or when you come across something in the New that references the Old, spend time, look back on that connection. Find how the scriptures are showing fulfillment in Christ. The New Testament in particular is filled with explanations of how we are to understand the Old Testament and how it points us to Christ. Be on the lookout for these explanations. For instance, in Hebrews the book of Hebrews is like a handbook uh, of the Old Testament, or, or in particular the sacrificial system, Leviticus. It is so helpful. Sermons in the book of Acts are going to help you understand the Old Testament more. The words of Jesus, his interpretation on the Old Testament is going to help you understand as well. So we use our New Testaments to learn how to access the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. And finally, as we see and think about the death and resurrection of Christ foretold through various occurrences in Old Testament history, as we see his glory, his beauty there, remember that he did that for you, for your healing, for your reconciliation with God. He did it so that you could glorify God and enjoy him forever. First John tells us that it's in Christ 
uh, giving himself, that we see his love for us, that we know love. Romans says um, that, um, excuse me, the, um, sorry, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we see these pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, we're seeing a picture of God's love for us, of God's gospel love for us. Do you see the love that God has for you as he speaks to you of Christ throughout the Old Testament? The whole Bible is telling us about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So now as believers in Christ, as we see his glory, we see what he has done for us. Let's live for him who went to such lengths for us. Let's live for the one who sacrificed himself for us. And if he sacrificed himself for us, how can we not live for him? Is there anything in our lives that we can withhold from Christ when he has done so much for us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Old Testament scriptures and how they bear witness of Christ. Thank you, God, that you have sent your son into the world to be the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament. Thank you that today we've gotten to see glimpses of that beauty, that glory. And I pray that as we go from here, Lord, you would help us to dig deeper, to go further, and to love Christ more, Lord. As we see these things, God, as we see these connections, as we see these fulfillments, I pray that you would help us all to love Christ more and more. And that that love for Christ would drive us to live sacrificially, to give everything for Christ who gave up his life for us. We do ask, God, that you would give us uh, illumination, you would open our eyes, you would help us to understand these things. Uh, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so please, God, help us to understand your book as you intended it. And may we get the most out of it for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.